We've gone through the traditional view on hell, concluding last week with the verses that kind of follow what we've taught as a traditional view in the church. Tonight, we're going to look at a different view. Tonight, we're going to look at the universalism view, which is, in plain English, the question, could it be, will it be, that everyone is going to be saved? What I'm going to do tonight is I'm going to do the same thing that I did previously. I'm going to put up some verses on the screen, and I want you to think with me about them. I want you to critique the verses, or just let them sink in for a moment, and tell me what you think of this view. I want to point out that the word universalism is a little bit confusing, because we hear it, and we immediately think of something like universalist church, which is outside the bounds of Christianity. We're talking about a, a view that, let's say, for example, there's a church that believes that all roads just lead to God, and they actually have set up churches or movements to believe that. So I put up on the screen that there's a couple of ways to think of universalism. There's a secular universalism. A secular universalism, for lack of a better word, is that belief that we have in the society in general, absent any religious basis, absent any theological basis, that if you die, you just go to heaven. If you ask somebody why that is, first, they might not even really believe there is a heaven. It's just kind of a belief we have in society. Maybe you could think of it almost as the way it works in the movies. So it really isn't based on a theological basis at all. It's just kind of an idea. It's a lot nicer than thinking about death resulting in rotting corpses turning into dust and that being the end. There's also a pluralistic universalism, and that comes closer to the idea, and it's still outside the bounds of Christianity, that is really the idea that all roads just lead to some sort of God, or maybe a particular God, but that all religions touch some truth of God, and they all get there somehow. So in the end, we're all equally in the same boat no matter what. It's not going to surprise you that I'm not going to talk about either of those two tonight. They're way out of the topic that we're in. I've tried very hard during this series to talk about things that are in the bounds of Scripture. And we're going to stay there tonight, but that doesn't get us away from universalism yet. Because in the church, for many, many centuries, there has been a tradition which I'm going to refer to, and many others do, as Christian universalism. That is that there are Christians who affirm the supremacy and centrality of Christ, who nonetheless believe that still all people are going to be saved. And we're going to talk about where they get that tonight. And the reason I give this so much room in our discussion is because they get their basis from Scripture, and I think that's totally in bounds. We're going to see how they read Scripture tonight. So we're not going into pluralistic or pluralism or just the idea of the syncretic ideas, which is just that everything leads to God or all things are God. We're not there. These are people who still affirm the centrality and the supremacy of Christ, okay? Now, I'm going to define it a little bit first. So Christian universalism, some people would also call post-mortem salvationism, a fancy way of saying that after you die, you still have a chance of being saved. So you could say that God will deal salvifically with people for whatever reason who left this world without knowing Christ that somehow death is not the end. And I want you just to think about that for a moment, because for many of us, as we've been raised in the church, our traditional idea is that you have a choice to make, but the choice runs out when you die. 
the opening of Christian universalism is that that choice is not taken away when you die. That's about the end of the agreement, though, among people who profess some sort of Christian universalist view. There are actually many variations of them. Uh, I'm going to point out a couple, maybe the bigger streams of thought within this. Some limit that to people who didn't have a chance to get to know Jesus. So if I could say it again in the opposite way, if you had a chance and you rejected Jesus, you don't get a post-mortem chance. That's it. You had your chance and you rejected him. They would pin that, by the way, on a verse about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They would say that that is a blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to have rejected Christ in this life and that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is to blaspheme the one whom the Spirit testifies about. Now, I know in this group we've had numerous series that somebody said, what is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? We've tried to look at it from different ways. I'm not prescribing it. I'm just saying that according to people who take this view, it's bolstered in their mind by the idea that because the Spirit testifies to Christ, if you have a chance to accept Christ and reject him, that's the blasphemy that Jesus is referring to that is not forgiven either in this life or the next. So they say, you get a second chance, you get, some believe you get many, many chances, but if you reject Christ in this life, you don't get a chance. That's one view. The more common views are probably that everyone will be saved without hell. That's one view. That just everyone's saved. There's not really a description too much of the mechanism because they say it doesn't matter. Scripture tells us that everyone's going to be saved. I can't really explain the mechanism, but I know everyone's going to be saved. So we'll look at that tonight. And I would say the majority view among Christian universalists is there is a literal hell. It will serve as a place of punishment, but it will end at some point. And for each person, it may end at a different point because they are going to be saved through hell. So that was a surprising thing that some people may not recognize, that if you take a Christian universalist view, there is a good chance I would say, in my mind, a slight majority chance, because most of the writings that are coming out still take this view, that there really is a hell. This is not a way to escape hell, per se, but it is a way to escape an eternal duration for hell. It is a way to see it more as a place where you will be punished. Some people would say refined. Some people might use the word redeemed. In other words, some people actually go as far as to say hell is grace because it is another way that God will deal with people to give them another chance. So that's the view that I think we're going to adopt the most tonight, is take, at, the, at their own word, take the view that most people think. It's not that it isn't there at all. It's that people will be saved through it who were not saved through Christ originally. All right, let me show you some verses of where they get this stuff from. And I want to first show, I'm going to go through a number of verses like I've done with uh, the traditional view. Uh, to point out that it's not like, you know, these people who take this are reading the same scriptures that we are. They're just emphasizing different ones. So let's start here. First, they start with this premise, and I've kind of organized some of their material. We know that God forgives. Here's some verses that say that. Micah 7:18. You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. They focus on the idea that God is not going to stay angry forever. But that has been said of God. Psalm 35, 30 verse 5. For his anger lasts only a moment. Numbers 14 verse 18. 
It describes the Lord as slow to anger, abounding in love, and forgiving sin and rebellion. And they focus on the forgiveness even of rebellion. That that's the Lord that we serve. Jeremiah 3.12 Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I am faithful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. There is a prophet quoting the Lord, not just describing him. Taking his words to the people. And Jeremiah 32.35 says... I never commanded, nor did it enter my mind, that they should do such a detestable thing. Now that last one seems like, okay, which one doesn't fit? Which verse is not like all the others? The last verse is significant because what the Lord is talking about in this, I never commanded it, nor did it enter my mind that they do such a detestable thing, he's referring to the practice that the Israelites decided to engage in where they sacrificed some of their own sons and daughters to the god Moloch. And the place they decided to do this was in the place that is traditionally the site for Gehenna. And we've been talking about that word and that location outside of Jerusalem that Jesus seems to take a root word from, a physical place that everybody understood, the place of burning of bodies, the place of burning of trash, the place of desolation and desecration, and he uses a Greek word that's rooted from that word for hell. So universalists, Christian universalists might say, God actually says that he thinks it's detestable to do something like burn your sons and daughters. How in the world could that God, who declares it to be detestable to burn your children, turn around and then support an idea of burning his children forever in hell? How does that work, they would ask. So they start with a picture of God that says, this is who we see God to be. And I would say probably the most interesting ones is the ones describing and having God declare that he will not stay angry forever. Comments? Yeah. A couple of issues I have is just like, that anger doesn't necessarily correspond with like judgment or justice or punishment. So because he's not angry forever doesn't mean that like there aren't consequences like those two things don't necessarily need to be tied to me although I do find it super interesting and when it says that it never entered my mind like how could it not like he's God so obviously he knew that they would is that meaning more like it was not his intention for his people that's correct it's really a it's a phrase that's meant like, I can't even believe that you would, or I would never even think to allow that. Right. It's more idiomatic than it is literal to say that it didn't enter his mind, because, of course, that would severely limit his, his omniscience. Is not God the judge of the earth, that he can do what he wills? That's one view of God, yes. I think people say, okay, but that's a different God than the one I want to worship, because the one I want to worship is boundless in love and mercy. So if you want a God who just does whatever he wants because he can, you can have that God. But these people would say, and I think even more traditional view people would say, but he's revealed himself to be those other things, so we still have to resolve the tension. We can't let ourselves off the hook so easily just by saying he's God, he can do whatever he wants. There are people who believe that. There are books of the Bible that take that position, like, like Job, right? That just come to that conclusion that there is no answer. You're God, you can deal with me the way you want. But most people spend more time thinking, 
Yeah, but he's revealed more than that about who he is, and I've got to resolve that somehow. So, well, these verses are good. They're giving me a lot to think about. But how would one that takes this view necessarily, like, balance these verses with, like, the parts, especially in the Old Testament, where God's, like, leave not one child from this town or woman or anything alive or, like, snuff out basically a whole, like, tribe or group of people or kill this person or... How would they like pick and choose the pictures that were given of God's nature? I don't think they deny those views. I think they just look at the duration. Really, this is a duration argument in some way. The response will normally be, it will trouble people about, again about the character of God. And again, if we're going to put the orders of magnitude, I would put hell highest, the flood that kills everybody on the earth next, and then the genocide. And I don't think we need to go there. We're not in that series, so let's leave that one alone and go back to hell. <laughs> okay, let me press forward. So these verses are actually just a taste of the view of God that they take. Now let's talk about the next thing, which is from the text, the argument that all people are going to be saved. Let me just read a few verses to you. John 12:32. I, being Jesus speaking, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. Now, I want you to think about the verse the way they think about it. When is Christ lifted up? What does lifted up mean? What is it a reference to? It can be as early as the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, or glory. The earliest point would be crucifixion in the order of those things. And the crucifixion and the resurrection occur very, very close together. And their point would be, and by the way, lifted up from the earth is often a, a reference to crucifixion literally being lifted up that way. We think of it as kind of in glory, and we sing songs about, I will lift you up, but actually, it's, it's more related to crucifixion. <laughs> we have to be careful with some of our worship lyrics sometimes. <laughs> the, the point here, though, is if Christ is at the end, through the crucifixion, how is he going to draw all men to himself? That's the question they would ask. Doesn't that imply in some way that it's, some of this is going to happen after the resurrection or after the ascension? Uh, because they happen in such a short frame of time, no matter which one you agree with. Crucifixion, resurrection, ascension, we're talking about a 40 to 50 day window. How is he going to do all men to himself? Some of it must occur later. Just hold that thought. They think time seems a little bit strange there. But they focus on the word all men. 1 Peter 3, 18 to 20. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit, through which also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago. We covered this verse in our series on Ephesians, where we actually hinted at the idea that in scripture there's this strange reference to Christ preaching to the spirits that were imprisoned, those in Hades probably, those in an intermediate state. For the purpose, I mean, what else would he preach to them about? Some people actually take the kind of vulgar position of Jesus was just going there to make fun of them. Uh, I don't see that at all. I mean, if there's some reason he's there, it's either because he's got to experience even that part of death, but the word preached to the spirits implies that he is actually engaged in some sort of preaching to the people who had died before he was on the earth. And Universalists would say, why would he do that? Why would you preach 
to people who are already dead. Traditionalists might respond and say, well, we don't know how it all works about people who came before Christ. Maybe this is the method. And I think that's a valid response, but it doesn't totally close the door because, again, you can have somebody say, well, if you can preach to these people, why couldn't you preach to other people? And clearly Christ is not going to engage in a vain act. Here's 1 Peter 4, 6. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead. So there's, again, that same concept. So that they might be judged according to human standards in regards to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So just the idea that there were people that were going to be preached to, even those who are now dead, opens the door to some of the people who say, look, there seems to be a post-mortem chance at salvation, otherwise these are vain acts. Is the preaching like necessarily completely understood as like an attempt to at conversion or salvation and not like explanation or this is why you're here or you rejected me and now like you're being told why or the word gospel gives us that in the context because he wouldn't use that I mean he's not just talking about he read from Matthew Mark Luke and John he's literally saying the good news was preached to them in this context yes that's what he's talking about for the purpose of salvation or for the purpose of accepting Christ? Well, this is where a traditionalist will push back and say, it's not clear from the context exactly what the purpose was. But I don't think that resolves it just by raising the question. The universalists will say, well, why do it at all? Like, isn't the idea that just there is someone, in this case, Christ, preaching to people who are dead, or who are the imprisoned spirits, like, isn't that by itself evidence to show that if Christ cares to do that, there must be a purpose. Because so much of what we rely on is from Christ's own words, and this seems to be a reliance on Christ's action. And that's been controversial since the beginning. I mean, it's found in the Apostles' Creed, and we noted that when we did our series on Ephesians, that the Apostles' Creed affirms that Jesus descended into hell during the interim between his crucifixion and resurrection, and has been part of the church for a long time, but I wouldn't say, like, everybody's on board with that idea. Keep going. Here's Romans 5, 18 to 19. This is explaining about how one sin resulted in condemnation for everybody. It says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through disobedience of one man, the many were made sinners, so also the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. It's a reference to the doctrine of original sin in some form, that one person sinned, all of humanity was banished, the fall occurs, and yet Jesus' one act reverses all that. But look at the two verses side by side. In verse 18 it says that the one righteous act results in justification and life for all people. If you just stop there, it would be a better thing than to keep reading, because then in the next part it says that the act of obedience of one man will, be, will make many righteous. It doesn't say all. So even in this verse that's cited, most universalists cite verse 18. Verse 19 kind of pulls back a little bit. But you've got to read verse 18 and say, what does all people refer to? On the flip side, 19 would be more troubling for those who have a doctrine of original sin. Because the question would be, all right, who were the few who didn't uh, from Adam? Uh, have said. So as challenging as it is would be uh, uh, for a universalist, 
it's equally challenging for someone who's like, no, all we're sinners. Well, it doesn't seem to suggest that either. Yeah, I think that's very interesting because it is true that the people who hold the most to a view of hell, of, of a traditional view of hell, also hold very strongly to an original sin perspective, right? And verse 19 backs off both positions a little bit. And the question is always, is Paul using just parallel language where it just seemed right? Or is he intentionally using all and all and then many and many? Either way, you can't pick one without the other. And they both seem to kind of temper each other. So just there it is. Here's one of the most cited ones. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Some people go all the way back to 9, but... Starting in verse 10, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, we're talking about Jesus, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The implication is there's no way that every knee could bow and every tongue confess unless all people are going to be saved and brought under Christ. As we looked at it in Ephesians, people would point to the passages that he brought all things and put them under Christ's feet. And that this reference to every knee is going to bow, that must mean that in some way all people are going to be brought to be under Christ. Yes? Even those in hell are up in Christ, right? That's the response. That's usually the response that if you say, Every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. Some people, not to sound callous, but they would say, right, when you show up at judgment and you realize he's really there and you're cast into hell as a result of it, you'll acknowledge that he's Lord. Like there'll be no doubt in your mind anymore. That would be a response that would be given by a traditional view that the fact that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he's Christ is not the same thing as being saved. It just means that at that point, when you appear in front of them, it's what's described as the great white throne judgment where everyone appears in front of them. There's not going to be any doubt anymore. This isn't a question. You're not going to be writing books anymore deciding what you think. It's going to be known. Your faith will be by sight, which is something we even sing about sometimes in some of our songs, like the idea of it's not, not anything to believe sight unseen anymore. You will know. But it is cited a lot by Christian universalists to say this is the position, and I think it's worth raising. Here's one that I think is pretty compelling. 1 Timothy 4, 9-10. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially those who believe. Don't let the fact that we're on our 7th or 8th verse slow you down in thinking. Look at that last part. The living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. That seems a little bit weird. That seems like everyone's going to be saved, but especially the people who believe in him. A universalist position on this would say, this proves that all people will be saved eventually. Most of them are going to require purification or redemption or punishment or call it what you will in the fires of hell or if it's not fire, whatever the thing is that's so bad. But the reason it's especially true for those who believe is because they escape that punishment. The universalist position is for Christians who accept Christ in this life, you are with Christ 
from the beginning, waiting for your friends to join you. And that's why this juxtaposition is so important, that he is the savior of all people, but especially those who believe. Not somewhat compelling as a verse all by itself. I look at that verse and I think, wow, that's not only interesting that I never caught that before, but it's not the craziest explanation I've ever heard of why that juxtaposition in that verse would be there, why that little twist would be at the end of verse 10. Monique. Could he be like the savior of all, but not all people choose to be saved? Or still because it uses the word especially? Because I think that word especially really does kind of slant it the other way, but... Well, in this case, for example, 1 Timothy is a letter, right? So you've got to read the entire letter and figure out what is Paul saying in this letter and what is the subject that they're on when they get to this point, right? Now, in this particular case, we're getting towards the end of the letter. And as I looked at it, he's really in this kind of thing, he's actually instructing Timothy at the very end to stay on and to stay true and to continue in his ministry. And that's why he uses the words, and that is why we labor and strive. He's giving him this encouragement at the end. And the encouragement comes in that that's why we put our hope in the living God, who's the savior of all people. What do you mean he's the savior of all people? Like, shouldn't you be saying, because he's going to save those who believe? Why does he go out of his way to say that other thing? But I will say that on its face, from what I was looking at, nobody that I found really took this verse to task as an erroneous interpretation. Like none of the people in the traditional camp go, that's the craziest interpretation and here's why. You know, I didn't read every book too. I just read like three or four, but that just seemed like that one went un unresponded to. Acts 3.21. Heaven must receive him, being Jesus, until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. There's a restoration of everything. That everything is a kind of a complete idea that everything's going to be restored, the earth and everyone in it. Okay? Romans 11.32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So universals say, even Paul is teaching that God is going to have mercy on all of them. That one's a little iffy on the context. 1 Corinthians 15.22 For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. The response there is usually, well, being alive is not necessarily the same thing as salvation. All are going to be raised at some point. And again, he's talking about the people who are in Christ. He's not saying that because of Christ everyone's going to have life. He's actually, specifically, he's talking about those who are in Christ will all be made alive. So I think this screen, a little weaker evidence, is the point. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The response there is usually, yes, that's his desire. But that doesn't mean it's going to happen. And some people say, wait a minute. Are you saying that God's desires can't come true? Like God is wimpy enough that he's just hoping, like he's crossing his fingers, hoping that all people will come to repentance. Couldn't he just do it if that's really his intent? So while the verse does not support that God is going to do this, it doesn't really answer the question of, well, if that's his intent, why wait these thousands of years just to make it happen? Here, Peter is saying, don't think he's slow. 
to the Lord, a thousand years is like a day. Like, don't lose heart. Don't think he's not coming back. But still, the question remains, if that's really his desire, he could do it. Titus 2.11. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. I think, again, there's a question about the people. Yes. But doesn't it say offers? Yes. So if, just because I offer something to someone doesn't mean that they're going to take it or accept it. Right. And that's very similar to the Second Peter verse, which is the same thing, like his intent being. So some people would say, yes, absolutely, that doesn't get us there. So I actually think there's stronger positions for this on the previous verses. That's why I said this screen, kind of the follow-up verses that I think are, are cited. By the way, I didn't pick these out. These are the ones that are cited. But, yes, that's a good response. All right, let me just go through a couple more. Hebrews 2.9 says, But we do see Jesus, who was made lower than the angels for a little while, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. All right, getting weaker and weaker, because I think here it's just saying that he tasted death for everyone, but... I don't know that that resolves the issue at all because we're all going to die anyway. I mean, it's not like he's tasted death and we're not going to die. John 2.2, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. I think that one comes closer. But again, you have to explain what does the atonement really mean? What is an atoning sacrifice? Some would say, well, yes, but but you still have to make some action to accept that. In other words, people would say, absolutely not. And that debate we even saw in the second chapter of Ephesians. And the first and second chapter of Ephesians. We saw that debate there, that what is required. So even traditionalists argue amongst themselves about is anything else required when God saves people that he has chosen for salvation? Is anything else required? Is our response even required? We discussed that before. And that's the whole view that breaks down between Calvinism and Arminianism and all shades in between. So if traditionalists fight over that issue, I don't know that this resolves it one way or another. Because we, to say that he's the atoning sacrifice for the whole world still leaves a lot of questions open that are not addressed here. All right. Those are verses that universalists would cite. Comments so far? Does this surprise you, sway you, make you think more? Where are you at right now? You're not convinced? No? Not convinced. I've been thinking about this a lot since the beginning of the study, and I've been pretty quiet. I, I don't believe in Christ because I just don't want to go to hell, but I would have a really hard time before I was a believer saying, oh yes, I'm going to follow Christ if I'm going to end up in heaven anyways. And I been thinking about it a lot and I don't I don't know what it is that Jesus is saving us from. I mean it talks numerous times in the New Testament about Christ came to save us, to save his people. But then what is he saving us from? Because I can very well be a good person and do a million things that do not break the law of the land, but at the same time go against everything, you know, that Christ tells me not to do. And then I'm I'm still a good person and then I'm still gonna end up in heaven. I have a hard time believing that there is a hell because I have a number of people in my life who are not believers, but I have a really hard time believing that Christ came to save us and then saying that everyone's going to die. Okay. Yes. I think it really undermines the gospel because it's just 
throwing out a bunch of other scriptures and saying we will perish, there's a lake of fire. I mean, I don't get how we can sit here and not see it. So you're saying this view undermines the gospel, okay? Jeremy? Yeah, I think there's a, c- a couple things awkward and which are so interesting. And I hear it a lot in the week. Um, it's this constant refrain of um, hearing the good news and being saved, right? Like when we talk about the gospel, I don't really care about heaven or hell because Jesus in the gospel spends so much time telling us what we should be doing. So I don't understand why we need to why we need a heaven or a hell to be doing things that, that the gospel... In fact, when Jesus talks about hell, he's doing it in the context, and many times in the context of things we should be doing and we're not doing. Whether it's people who are you know, in poverty, people who are in prison. I mean, there are all these examples, right? Even the story of Lazarus and the rich man. I mean, the, deeper, the deeper story there is this broken relationship between these two people. Look at the gospel. Like, for me, I look at the gospels and I just see something different about what's going on. Like, I actually agree with you so much more than you think, because I agree with everything that you, that you said. What even makes you saved, and why is it this idea that you just say a prayer, and now I'm going to heaven, and like, all those little nuances, and like, I agree that it's strange to me when I hear people say, like, I don't think I'd accept Christ if it wasn't a hell, or what is he saving us from if it, like, I understand, like, that does sound strange to me sometimes, because I sit back and I'm like, no, but like the reward of just loving him or following him or having something like here because it's right or because he's holy and all these other reasons. And um, I personally do think I lean more towards that there is a hell, um, but I am open and I'm like earnest. And that's why I'm asked, like wanting to know like just the answers to all these questions because if there was a way that there isn't a hell or that it isn't permanent and we all get saved, I'm the Christian that's like, Oh my God, that's awesome. Like, that would be amazing. If I died and found out that everyone else that wasn't a Christian somehow still could know God afterwards or whatever and be saved, I would be thrilled. Like, totally thrilled. But, like, all the evidence, all the research I'm doing so far, like, I still think it's there because I don't personally have a problem with, like, justice or the more violent acts of God or things like that. Like, personally, I don't. Okay. Let me actually address the point about why believe in Christ anyway. And I think that both of you have actually spoken something very, very true. I mean, our belief in Christ should be based on the fact that he is God. Our belief in Christ is not so that we can determine the outcome, although that, for some people, may be wound into it as an extra benefit. If Christ is God, and if our study of Ephesians tells us anything, then being unified with God is the purpose for which we were saved, to be in him. To be unified with one another and to be unified with him, we are literally invited to join the unity that he shares. As part of the triunity of God, we are brought into that to be partners with him. That's the reason that we should believe in Christ and accept him as God, because it puts us in that position of living aligned with the way we were created to live in the first place. Not later, but immediately. Now, Paul talks about salvation in three tenses. You were saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And those three tenses are very important. Because when we talk about what is salvation, we're always usually talking about that decision that comes in a prayer, but that may be only the past tense. You are justified. Past tense, 
made right with God, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to you to stand right before God. That may be a momentary thing. But most of Paul's writings are focused on the being saved, literally the sanctification of every day becoming more and more like Christ. And the will be saved is the glorification that comes. And Paul reminds that if you are justified, you will be glorified. And that's why salvation in our churches has become so much about this momentous one-time event. Because of that guarantee, and Christ makes it as well, about belief in him leading to this certain life, it should not always focus on the future, but because there's this relationship between what is done in justification leads to glorification, it's like we gut the middle. We just ignore it. Yeah, we turn it into how to be a better dad or how to be a better friend, but really it's about how to be like Christ. And I would say that the greatest focus Paul's writings, and I would say the greatest focus of the Gospels in recording what Jesus said is about this, the sanctification. The, right. Well, because to, to confess Christ as Lord is that beginning point. And then, of course, to receive the end glorification is not even something you do. But it's the every day of the present tense that goes on in this life. And so when we talk about salvation, we need to keep all three of those concepts in mind. But there is a whole like, study of these pieces, and it's way beyond what we're doing, but let's at least keep that summary in mind because I don't think it's inconsistent. One of the verses that supports the traditionalist view the most about the duration of punishment in hell is this one from Matthew 25, verse 46, where at the end of the sheep and goats passage, which Jesus is giving as an end times picture, he's actually saying this is what it's going to be like. He concludes with this verse. Then they, being the goats, the bad people, will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. There's, a, there's kind of, again, equating these eternal punishment and eternal life. And traditionalists will point to this verse and say, Jesus himself said that hell lasts forever. So let's look at these two words real fast. Here's the response. The universalists will say, the word eternal is actually the Greek word aeonius. And it does not mean eternal. It means for an age. The aeon or eon comes very close to our eon. Like the aeon is very close to the way we would say like an eon, an epoch. So it comes from that same root, which means an age. So the aeonius is actually an age-abiding, age-lasting event. It lasts for an age, but it's not eternal. While we don't know it, it may be an indefinite period, it doesn't go on without end. So the argument would go, there's nothing in this verse that actually says it's going to be eternal. In fact, there is a word that is accepted by most people to be, it's the ayadios, which does mean forever and eternal and is used everywhere and could, if you wanted to, have been used in this verse because it could be used elsewhere in scripture. So you could have used this Greek word instead of the other one. Now, I wanted to shake this down a little bit to see if this was right. And I got to tell you that it was pretty hard to find someone who successfully defeated this argument in the limited time I spent looking at it. Limited being like, you know, like five or six hours of doing different things to try to figure out what are other people saying. 
I've not done a dissertation. I'm not an expert in Greek languages. I, I don't know that this is the end-all, be-all. But I've got to tell you that I, I would have expected people that take a traditional view to be able to defeat this argument because they know it. Most of them will do this. They say the Greek lexicon is clear that Ionios is everlasting and is eternal. The problem is a Greek lexicon, all it does is it goes through the scriptures and figures out where we've interpreted the word a certain way and reports that. It's not like saying what is the original language. In fact, that's actually kind of a poor way to figure out what does the word actually mean in its context. You need to really go to somebody who's an expert in the language who looks at the language. How is it used all over the New Testament? How is it used in other scriptures? And there's all sorts of arguments about how about Plato? How did he use it? Because he used these words in different contexts when he talked about Hades and what was he saying and what word was used. And some of the traditionalists say, no, by the time that this word was being used in the New Testament, these words were virtually identical. They had lost their denotation. Their connotation was almost identical. I'll just tell you that that's the way it's pointed up. It would seem, if you accept this argument, that one of our best arguments for it being eternal is that maybe the word doesn't actually imply that. Here's an example. In Titus 1-2, it says, In the hope of Ionios life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the Ionius began. We translate that in our scriptures as, In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before the beginning of time. Or a more literal translation, the NASB says, long ages ago. Notice how the same exact word is translated differently in the same verse. Because it would make no sense to translate Ionius eternally both times. Why? Because it would say that in the hope of eternal life, God who couldn't lie promised long before the eternity began. Well, when would it end? I mean, if eternity goes on and on and on and it has no ending, like, then we would never be having this verse. There would never be a before time or before long ago. Like it would just be infinity both ways. If you've lost that argument, it's okay. It took me about half an hour to follow it. But the point is, I think there's a decent argument to be made by universalists that this word does not necessarily mean eternal. From the people that I expected to debunk this, they didn't really debunk it, except to just say, no, Ionius means eternal. Okay. I'll have to refer to somebody who's much smarter than me in Greek. I will point out one thing, though. Whatever you think about eternal punishment seems to be what you're going to have to think about about eternal life. So this is ironic. Christian universalists seem to believe, not all of them, because they catch the, the little disjunction here, that heaven will go on forever and eventually all the people in hell will join us. You think, but wait a minute, but they both seem to have be the same duration. But they would say, yes, but that doesn't mean they have to run the same exact times. Maybe heaven is limited, but it's much longer than hell. Maybe hell is shorter. Last thing, Ray for the last couple of weeks has been saying that the word fire appears in scripture a lot and it doesn't refer to hell, and she's correct. The word fire, pyros, actually appears for many things, including the Holy Spirit. Like the fire that the Holy Spirit comes, like the tongues of fire. Like there's different references to fire, and oftentimes they're cleansing in nature. So again, they, even though this isn't the greatest way to make an argument, they say, hey, sometimes it's referred to in a cleansing nature, so it's possible that hell has a cleansing type of purpose. And that's why Jesus was using fire. 
The problem with that argument is Jesus seemed to make it like, no, it's not cleansing like you taking a bubble bath. I mean, he was saying this is really painful stuff that you want to avoid. So I think just saying that the word fire is used in different ways, I don't think resolves much, but they do make that argument. One crazy one is that brimstone and sulfur that's referred to in Revelation really is the word theon, which is really the same like root as theos, and they say it's the same root as God. So basically, they're saying that when you go through fire and brimstone, you're really going through purification and a pleasing incense to God that's actually cleaning you so that you can prepare yourself for heaven. I think both of these arguments are, in my opinion, they're weak, and they were not made by somebody I would really look at to be very scholarly. The previous arguments were, I take them much more seriously. I think these are more lay arguments that are being made, but they've been very popular lately. Because I think people are looking to grasp onto any idea that would say, get me out of this idea that God's going to torture people consciously forever because they didn't believe in Christ. And that brings me to the last point, which is this one. Probably the best person who advocates this position the most clearly is Nels Frey. Well, let me explain why I'd even put up a quote by this guy, because you know I don't just like to put up quotes by people unless there's a reason. We've been looking at things from Scripture textual arguments that actually cite verses or that are just saying you've interpreted the text, the actual words incorrectly. Now we're moving to the second argument. I've only got one slide on that. And that second argument is, yeah, there's just some people who don't like the idea of God torturing people. And I think he best expresses kind of the view behind it. He said that, he says that God's, God is unconditional, uncaused, groundless, uncalculating, spontaneous love. Love for enemies, if need be. It's an intrinsic, inseparable part of agape. Universally, unconditionally, and eternally. He goes on to say, if eternal hell is real, love is eternally frustrated, and heaven is a place of not only the churches, but also God's mourning and concern for the loss. That is the reason that heaven can be heaven only when it has emptied hell. As surely as love is love and God is God. Yes. How does he know God's His ways are higher than our ways. And that's why I call it the theological basis, because what this is, is putting the text aside, putting aside the arguments. This is a belief about who he believes God to be. And you're right, you could ask that question openly and say, well, what is the basis of your belief that God is going to mourn for the people who are in torment? Just like Monique's question was, and this person is giving the answer. They're saying, if hell is real, we're going to be eternally frustrated in heaven because we're supposed to be about love, even love for enemies. And there's no way that we could see that through if we know that there are people in conscious torment at the same time. That's the view. Like, just, I can't believe that heaven could be heaven. I can't believe that God could be love and tell us to love enemies if he himself is going to torture them. Now, I use the word torture over and over because that's the objection. A traditionalist would say that that is the punishment they deserve. You know, call it whatever you want, but you deserve it and it's punishment and there's no escape for you because the only people who escape it, by the way, everyone deserves it, but the only people who are escaping this are the people whose name is found in the book of life. And there was only one way to get that to happen. That would be the traditionalist view. By the way, news flash this week. I should announce this at the beginning, because if any of you are Southern Baptists, you're not allowed to be in this room anymore. This week, the Southern Baptist Convention 
that came out this week in response to Rob Bell's book about love wins and all this crazy talk about universalism and all this crazy talk about annihilationism. And they wanted to make it clear that no, hell is conscious eternal torment for those who do not accept Christ. That's it. So if any of you are SBC members, you've got to let me know. <laughs> I should have gotten a note from your parent let you sit in here or whatever it is that they... Or from the church denomination or something like, you're not allowed to be here. It's kind of like when they let you go from sex ed because they're not allowed to talk about it. All right, anyway. Monique. Funny that you just said that because what saddens me is like, I think this is important and it's an important journey for each of us spiritually to make an answer, like you said, for what we believe. It's important to talk about these questions and like to bring it up and, and to struggle through it, but we're one body in Christ and we're supposed to be united. And I honestly, and this is just my opinion, but I honestly don't think that the belief in whether or not hell is eternal or existent in any way defines as to whether or not you're a Christian or love Christ or are saved. Like, I just don't think it's one of those tenets that should, like, define us or separate us. Like, yeah, that Christ was the Son of God, sure, something like that. But something like this, like, I don't understand why people obsess over it. And that, I think, is what like, really breaks my heart. Like, I, I really don't like seeing that within the church. Okay. Yes. How do you draw the line between, like, I guess they call it apostasy or heresy? You know, like, if it's the divinity of Christ, okay, but if it's about hell or something else, like salvation, okay, well, like, how do you do that? It's a very difficult line to draw in this case, I'll be honest with you. I said at the beginning that universalism is not new. It goes back to origin, right? So origin first formulated this in the second century, second into the third century. In the fifth century, the church formally ruled that Origen's view of universal salvation was heresy. Okay? So one way is you just have a church council, they just decide. I don't think that's terribly helpful, though, to where we are today as a church. I think the difficulty comes in trying to determine what issues really should divide us. You mentioned the divinity of Christ. Like, I've often said that we should only split on the fundamental issues. All issues, even of on the essential, essential doctrines, we can split over. And everything above that, no matter how strongly you hold those opinions or persuasions, you shouldn't be able to split over them. Of course we have. But the problem in this one that makes it so thorny is a traditionalist will say, this is not just about hell. This is about the integrity of the very scriptures themselves. Because the people who say that Christ is going to be saving all, are ignoring or they're somehow denigrating the scriptures. So we are now splitting over an essential doctrine because you're not just talking about hell, you're talking about whether it comes from the scriptures. To respond to that point, I would say this. That's the reason that I picked most of these verses out of the scriptures tonight and didn't go outside of them. Because I want to show that people who take a universalist view try very hard. There's some that are out there. Okay, but I would say a great number of them try very hard to stay within the bounds of Scripture and to argue from the Scripture something they believe about God. And I don't see any of them, at least the mainstream people, denying the divinity of Christ, denying his centrality, denying his supremacy. They're just differing about the duration of hell. In fact, most universalists these days do not even deny hell exists. There are some, like I said, who do. Some say it just doesn't exist. Or Christ is just magically going to save everybody just because he died on the cross. There are those views, but most take the view of no, they will spend time in hell for a period of time. 
So if we're just arguing about the duration, and I could see that some of the arguments actually, you know, they're not a slam dunk argument on either side, then I think that's how you rule that you go, yeah, we shouldn't be splitting over this. We should not be splitting over an issue about the duration of hell. Although, like I said, this week the Southern Baptist Church was pretty adamant about this is fundamental to us. Like, okay, but, you know, there's a lot of things that are fundamental to them, you know, and I just think that maybe that should, it's too many things, right? Yes. Kind of like a weak view of scripture, though, because even if there isn't a hell or if it's not everlasting, like I don't see how that somehow like undoes the whole Bible just because we might not we might not have understood the view properly. And again, I kind of lean more towards that there is like sort of a more traditional view. But then I look at someone like Jeremy, who obviously takes very seriously like whether or not there's a hell to live out scripture and like to be doing the things Christ says now and like you know, helping the poor and this and that, like, he takes it seriously. So how, like, I just, yeah, I don't, I don't see how you can just label someone and be like, you're not a real Christian or you're not this or this somehow takes away from the scripture because obviously people that hold this view still take it very seriously and follow Christ's life and want to be Christ's life. And Well, this group stands in strong opposition to that principle. I mean, this group stands for the idea that you can explore the depths and the mysteries of God, the things go to the edge of the knowledge of what we understand, become better educated about who God is, love God more, even be able to explain God better, and still have tensions within the group that where we don't all agree and still be unified in Christ. That's been the whole reason that, that I think you could say if you accomplished anything, you prove that this could happen. And not just once or twice, but for long periods of time that you could actually do that. And I think that should be the model elsewhere because we have to stick to what is fundamental and then live in the tension of what is not and say, that's okay, we're still unified in Christ. That's more important than having doctrinal purity. It just is. Now, here's the twist, by the way, my last word. After everything I said about those verses and I threw up on the screen and I've shown you, the, I think, the sentiment behind this about who God must be for us to believe in him this way, Here's the interesting thing textually. I cited from a number of books, and in almost every one of those books, there is a statement that actually comes to exactly the opposite conclusion about Christ. Now, for the benefit of people who aren't in this room, let me just read these out real fast. John 3.18 and verse 36, chapter 5.29 and chapter 12, verse 25. Acts 13.46 28, 24 to 27, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Galatians 6, 7 to 8, 2 Corinthians 4, 3 through 4, Ephesians 5, 6, Colossians 3, 6 and verse 25, Philippians 1, 28 and 3, 19, 1 Timothy 4, 16, 5, 24 and 6, 9, Hebrews 3, 14 to 19, chapter 6, verses 4 to 8, chapter 10, 26 to 31 and also verse 39, 2 Peter 2, 3, chapter 6, 9 to 10, uh, and verse 17, verses 20 and 22, and also chapter 3, verses 7 and 16, and also 1 John 2, 19, 3, 10, verse 15, and chapter 3, and also 5, 16. The reason I put those up there is because there's no way we're going to go through all of them tonight. Most of you are really thrilled about that, I know. Um, but you should pick out a couple of them. I would start just even with the ones in John, by the way, uh, even in Acts. Because... We just put up verses on the screen that say that God is going to save all or some basis for it. But in every one of those books, 
There's also a statement that basically says that, no, he's not. The ones in John actually say that, like, if you believe in him, then you're given this life. And if you don't believe in him, you're condemned. And so they would be strange in many places to believe that the same author is confused when they use all in one place or a justification for all and in another place actually making some of those choices. You'll see some of these verses again. I'm just putting them up there right now. And at some point, we're going to come back to them uh, when we actually put all of these things together and talk about what we're going to do with all this knowledge that we've been walking through and all these scriptures we've been reading. When we kind of synthesize the material at the end, you'll see this in the final version. But just to point out that if you looked at all those verses tonight and thought, wow, gosh, some of those really do sound like they're saying that, you must at least consider these verses side by side. And again, I didn't go outside the scriptures that we actually looked at. So I looked at the books we looked at, because presumably, when we were talking about how to read something in context, an author knows his own mind. It is not going to go crazy in one part of the book and say one thing, and another part of the book say another. So if they do say things that look like they contradict each other, then you have to put them together and at least say, hey, there's a tension here. Hey, it's not a clear case that he's saving everybody, because over here he's saying he's not. What's that all about? How do I put those two things together? So I'll make these verses available for us. I didn't put them all on the screen because I figured by this point we'd be in our third hour. So. so that's what I've got for us tonight. Next week, Morgan is going to walk us through annihilationism. And that view is somewhat similar. A lot of people would say, yes, there is a hell, but at the end of it, people just end. Or hell will end them. Maybe there's a period of punishment, maybe there isn't. But that one is similar in some ways, except the ending has changed. Instead of them joining us in heaven afterwards, there just is no ending for them, and no part of heaven. They're just snuffed out at the end. And that's the ending of annihilationism. So we'll look at the verses that deal with that. And then now that we've looked at all of these on hell, like I said, we'll come back and synthesize those and say, why did I sit through this? <laughs> what am I going to do with all this information? And uh, where was I in the first place? Did I move at all? Did my views change? Was anything in here affecting me? So let me pray, and then we're going to go back into our liturgy and close out for tonight. Let's pray. Lord, I'm mindful every time we step into areas that only you ultimately know the truth. And I thank you, Lord, that we can sit in this room and peer into things that we have absolutely no idea about. And yet we know, Lord, that you give us glimpses, revelations of who you are and the things to come. May we never be arrogant enough to assume that we have everything figured out about the infinite, about the eternal, about the things that no one has been able to glimpse and come back and report to us about. At the same time, Lord, we want to be serious people who believe and understand your word and are able to speak to others about it intelligently, lovingly, and to be able to give a reason for the hope that we have. Lord, give us patience. There are moments even in my own study when I'm looking at all these things that I think, I don't know that I care anymore. But Lord, you cared enough to talk to us about it. May we take seriously the opportunity to understand what it was that you were revealing about yourself and how seriously you wanted it to be revealed to others through us. Pray this in your name. Amen.